Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome back to See in Red, a true crime podcast. Thank you for joining us uh, again after our break. This has taken so many times for us to do it. Um, but there we go. Thank you for joining us. We had a lovely couple of weeks off, didn't we? We did. And we're sorry that we had a break. People love to have a go at us for it, but I think it was well deserved. I think we needed it. We needed a, a couple of weeks, didn't we? I think so. And we're back. So there you go. Um, so before we start, we'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone who's signed up on Patreon over the last couple of weeks. So a huge thank you to our newest subscribers, which are Joanne Scobie, Sarah Denham, Danielle from the Wives and Knives podcast, Mel Whitfield, Danielle P, Cheryl Lunt, Claire Leanne, Hannah McLean, Renee Lizak, Angel Beaumont, Stephanie Worrell, Katie Robson, Amy Holt, Carol Poland, Sarah Atherton. We also had some people sign up annually. So a huge thanks to Claire Smiles, Jules and Katie Spaulding. And also a massive thank you to Rach Williams who has edited her pledge. So thank you so much everybody who signed up to support us on Patreon. Um, And if you'd like to do the same as these guys, there's loads of different tiers you can use, you can sign up for and you get different goodies depending on what you sign up with. So thank you so much. If you are a patron, don't forget we've got the book club coming up. So I'll let Mark tell you a little bit more about that. Um, but that's only in a couple of weeks' time now, isn't it? I know, yeah. It's um, it's rolled around pretty quickly. But a lot of you have already read it. Um, I've obviously not started listening to it yet. So I've got a week and a half to do that. Um, but yeah, we are meeting on the 1st of April in the evening, UK time. And um, I think we'll probably do it over Crowdcast so we can all interact um, and yeah, we're going to be reading, or we have read, the um, Victoria Cilia's book, uh, I Survived, which is, uh, you might remember her case. She was, uh, basically her husband attempted to murder her by sabotaging her parachute. Horrible case, wasn't it? Because she fell to the ground and it was only because the fields had been ploughed uh, where she fell that there was a kind of a bit of a cushion and um, and she miraculously survived. So it's her really powerful story of, of being in a really abusive relationship, actually, um, and, and ultimately what happened in the end. So, uh, so fantastic first book for us. And once we've met and reviewed that one, we'll move on to the next one and, and do it again. So, um, so yeah, really exciting and absolutely looking forward to the 1st of April. Yeah, I've, I've personally really enjoyed reading her book. And so um, thank you to everyone who voted for that one because you chose well. I'm really, really glad that you chose that one. Definitely. Before we uh, get cracking, I just wanted to give a very special shout out to Lisa Rush. Uh, your son Lenny got in touch with us via our YouTube channel. Um, just to say, can we say hello? We know that you're a massive fan of the show and um, he wanted us to uh, give you a shout out around Mother's Day. So this is um, a special Mother's Day mention for Lisa. So thank you for listening to the show and a huge hello from me and Bethan. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for listening. And finally, before we actually begin the episode, we're really, really excited to tell you all about this week's sponsor. So Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited. Beautiful Jewellery Company is a small family-run business that was established in 2011 by a husband and wife duo. With offerings in all aspects of jewellery design, as well as jewellery parts, loose stones, repairs and bespoke one-off designs, they specialise in high-quality British-made jewellery from a UK business. 
They work with a variety of metals such as yellow, white and rose gold, as well as silver and platinum. So there really is something for everyone. So much variety on there and I found a really nice, beautiful necklace for my mom. Um, so it's got the outline of a butterfly. It's a very delicate silver, solid silver, beautiful piece. And um, that's come. And I've got something for Bethan as well, some beautiful earrings that, that came. Uh, so I'll send those over to you, Bethan. But, but yeah, some absolutely beautiful stuff. I know my mom's going to be really excited to receive that. I wasn't really sure if we'd be able to say exactly what you'd got her because... I didn't know when her birthday was, so I was like, oh no, am I, are we allowed to talk about this? Yeah, it's way off. Um, but she does listen to the show, but she'll have forgotten. It's in November, so I'm oh, just being organised. Right, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited to see that they um, sold plain chains as well, because I've got a pendant I can't wear. So I've ordered myself um, a chain, so I can finally wear that, which is really exciting. And I may have also bought myself a necklace at the same time, because... I'm a magpie and I couldn't help it. So I'll definitely be putting some photos up on social media for you guys to have a look at. Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited offer a wide range of products which can be made with your customer specifications or to your own design. And you can choose your own gemstones and diamonds. And they have a special offer for listeners of Seeing Red. So once this episode comes out, you can take advantage of an amazing timeless discount code of RED10, so the word RED and then the numbers one zero, active on the site for a discount of 10% off your entire basket with no minimum order amount. Uh, The great thing is that all orders are available with worldwide shipping and the website is ever-changing and new products are added daily with special offers and unique rarities on offer throughout the year. So what are you waiting for? Head over to beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and don't forget to use code RED10, that's R-E-D, and then the numbers 10 for 10% off your order. I can't recommend these guys highly enough. We'll put some photos on on our socials of what we've ordered and what we've received and and we'll kind of show those off because it's beautiful um lots of bespoke jewelry on there so the the pendant that I've had the butterfly outline is a limited edition piece so um you know that not many people are going to going to have the same exact same thing so this week I am not giving you a BPSA of Bethan's public service <laughs> announcement instead oh my God, I'm going to give it. you a little history lesson how excited are you mark well, yeah, really fucking excited. <laughs> Can I just go to sleep now? Well, you might not actually. I th- I think this is actually quite interesting. So do you know much about what happened at Dunkirk? No, I don't. It sounds boring. <laughs> um, to be honest, I do love history. I should know what happened at Dunkirk because that's really important history. No disrespect, but it's boring, isn't it? So, uh, but no, go, go for boring. it. Um, the, there is a There is a link, I promise. So... Recently, I watched the 2017 film Dunkirk, and I really enjoyed it, not just because of Tom Hardy and Harry Styles. I mainly enjoyed it for what an amazing story it was and how incredible it is to know that so many people joined forces to try and help. And it does have a link to today's case, I promise. So I'm really interested to find out if any of our listeners guessed the case from this short introduction. So in May 1940, troops had been cut off from their advance into France by a pincer movement from the German army. The British, French and other Allied soldiers were trapped on the beaches at Dunkirk and the Prime Minister for Britain, Winston Churchill, regarded this as the greatest military defeat for centuries and it seemed likely that this was going to cost Britain the war. 
the majority of the British expeditionary force was trapped and they left the country vulnerable to invasion by Germany. Because of the shallow waters, British destroyers were unable to approach the beaches and soldiers had to wade out to the boats. Many of them waited hours in shoulder-deep water. And as part of Operation Dynamo, between the 26th of May and the 4th of June 1940, 850 private boats helped to rescue more than 336,000 soldiers from the beaches, ferrying soldiers to the warships. These boats were called on by the British Ministry of Shipping, who had kind of called around asking if anybody has a boat that could get into those shallows, could they come and help? So an incredible selection of pleasure boats, ex-service vessels, private yachts, small boats, fishing boats, barges and other random vessels headed out. A few of them were sailed by the owners, but most of them were manned by Royal Navy officers. And some of them were kind of sailed them by experienced volunteers after they were requisitioned by the government with sort of no time for the owners to even be contacted. So some of them, the owners would just come back and their boat was gone, which I thought was mad. Isn't that kind of like maritime laws, though, that you you have to help if you're in a position yeah. to help and you're at sea? So I suppose it was they, they had no choice. It was a legal thing. Yeah, and I I don't really know how legal it is, but I'm sure that if someone need, like someone in a position of power needs your vehicle they can requisition it for a valid reason. So I think the police can do that even in this country. I think so. Yeah. So all the boats were checked to make sure they were seaworthy, they were fuelled, and then they were taken to Ramsgate to set sail for Dunkirk. So they weren't actually little ships. That name is just a referring to them all. Um, and at least 12 actual little ships from that part of history were used in the 27 film, which I thought was really cool. And the reason for this to be mentioned at the beginning of today's episode is because the ship I'm going to be talking about today was actually used as a little ship. However, by the time of the incident in this episode, nearly 50 years later, it had been repurposed as a boat for parties and events on the River Thames. That actually, I will give you this, that I, I really didn't know that. That is fascinating. The history, I won't say what the boat's called because that will give it away at this point. You'll come on to it very soon. But that is actually really interesting. I didn't know it had that history. Yeah, it is, it is isn't it? It's quite fun. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad you indulged me on my little little tangent there. On the 20th of August 1989, Antonio de Vasconcelos' birthday party was about to be held on this boat the Marchioness. Antonio and a few others had been for a birthday dinner prior to the party and arranged by his friend Jonathan Pang, the night was shaping up to be a glitzy and glamorous affair. The party attended by the birthday boy's family and friends as well as colleagues from the fashion and finance worlds. Jonathan was a successful modelling agent and there was models, makeup artists and agents at the well-attended party also. Antonio was an aristocrat from a Portuguese family. He was a banker who had studied economics at Cambridge University and at 26 years old was already described in the press as a writer, musician and philanthropist. He was always spoken of in a good light and people seemed to really like him. They were drawn to him. 130 people were attending this celebration for Antonio's birthday, embarking the vessel at Charing Cross Pier, ready for it to set sail under the moonlight at just after 1am. Antonio had said that he wanted to do something different for his birthday compared with the usual parties and they were the usual parties that this group of friends attended quite often. 
Boat parties were still quite novel, so this was a really exciting new thing to do, and it didn't matter to Antonio that he couldn't swim. Jonathan had paid £695 to hire the boat from 1am to 6am, with extra paid for the hire of the disco, for food and for drinks. And the plan for the evening was for the Marchioness to head down the river to Tower Bridge, then back to Charing Cross for some passengers to disembark. And then the Marchioness would travel to Greenwich before returning to Charing Cross at 5.45am. In an interview I've watched, Jonathan said he wasn't really that impressed with the boat because he thought it was a bit old-fashioned and a bit smelly. He remembered remarking that the River Thames was disgustingly dirty and it had bits of rubbish floating around on the murky water. And I felt a bit sorry for Antonio because a few other guests made comments like about the boat being a bit narrow and hot. But I like to imagine that he just didn't care. He just brushed it off and he was like, nope, I'm going to enjoy this evening anyway. I think that's awful when it's it was his birthday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his party. Yeah. So I, I think that's awful. That's cruel, really, when it's your party, you want everything to be um, how it should be and everyone to have a great night. And then you've got your friends kind of moaning a little bit about the boat being smelly and dirty and the Thames shock horror having a load of crap floating down it. Yeah. I think what, that, what that is a bit expect? sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Thames, I think back then in particular, this is like 30 odd years ago now, uh, wasn't as cleaned up as it is now. So it would have been a bit like a rubbish tip, to be honest. That makes me feel so old when you're like 30 odd years ago, because that's the year I was born. So, Beth and I was seven then. That's I know, worse. you're way older, so it's fine. But. I am, yeah. At least you're still a, a young <laughs> spring chicken. I'm middle-aged now. Middle-aged. I also imagine that people's initial reactions when they kind of got there and they looked in the water or they embarked the boat probably soon slipped away, because once the music started, the drinks began to flow... On the both upper and lower decks, the partygoers would have this relaxed evening with nibbles and drinks. I can just imagine everyone's dressed up, sparkles, glamour on display. And I feel like we would be right at home there, champagne in hand, helping ourselves to an absolute feast of a buffet and canapes. Oh my God. Yeah, screw the champagne. I'll just be all over that buffet. Um, yeah, we would, wouldn't we? That would be a perfect kind of party for us on the Thames, on a boat, in the wee small hours, getting wrecked on really good champagne and, um, and yeah, indulging in that buffet. I'd be literally pulling you off that buffet so that I could get some of the action. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Because you know that Jonathan Fang as well would definitely have put on good champagne, so. Oh God, yeah. And they would have had really good caterers do that buffet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And at the same time as the Marchioness set sail under the moonlight on clear, calm waters, an 80 metre long suction dredger named the Bow Bell was also setting off on a trip. Leaving from Nine Arms in Battersea, it was headed towards the shipwash dredging grounds on the Thames. So here I'm going to try my best to explain the differences between these two ships. And I've put some photos for you, Mark, because I enjoy doing that now. Um, And I'm going to try and kind of give a brief overview for our listeners of the differences between them. So the Marchioness was 26.1 metres long and 4.4 metres at the beam, compared with the Bell Bell, which was 79.9 metres long and 13.8 metres at the beam, so more than double the size. The Marchioness was 46.19 gross tonnes, compared with the Bell Bell, which was 1,474.72 gross tonnes, So the Marchioness is clearly a pleasure boat. It looks really lightweight compared to this industrial dredger. 
Yeah, I would say um, the Marchioness is your classic. It's like a party boat. You would see them up and down the country. Um, I've been on boats a bit like that. Um, but the Bow Bell is your proper industrial tank. It's something that you wouldn't really want to come across um, if you were in a smaller boat because it is. it would be quite imposing, quite intimidating. Yeah, and it's just definitely. this kind of big chunk of metal. Yeah. Mm. So the Marchioness was built in 1923 for a businessman who ran pleasure trips on the River Thames. And from the early 70s, the idea of nighttime boat parties with discos started to gather momentum. The Marchioness was one of these kind of first boats that would start doing this, and it was licensed to carry 165 passengers. The Marchioness carried a crew of two people, the captain and the captain's mate, plus, um, you know, staff for like the bar and food and things. So on the night of Antonio's birthday party, there were also two bar staff on board. So really only a crew of four which is small, isn't it? It that is. It is a small crew. For 130 people, that does surprise me. It seems very small. Yeah, it does. The Bow Bell was an aggregate dredger launched in 1964. And at the time of these events, it had a crew of nine. So it had a master, two mates, three engineers, two able seamen and a cook. The Marchioness was supposed to leave the pier at 1am but it was delayed until 12 minutes past. But they radioed in to let the Thames Navigation System, based at Woolwich, know. She reported passing Vauxhall Bridge at 1.20 and Waterloo Bridge at 1.35, and it was usual practice for the Thames Navigation System, or TNS, to radio all river traffic at 1.15 and 1.45, and this was to notify any vessels about the bow bell, which was the large heavy dredger, and it was headed downstream, because like you said... For smaller boats, that would be a really imposing, intimidating thing to see coming towards you if you weren't prepared. You needed to make sure you were out of the way. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's the kind of vessel that isn't going to move for you. So you, if you're the smaller vessel, like the Marchioness, you are going to have to have enough time to get out of its way um, because it's just too vast. It won't be able to move um, quickly enough for you. Exactly. Just before Blackfriars Bridge, the Marchioness passed another pleasure cruiser called the Hurlingham, which was also hosting a disco that night and was also heading in the same direction. And at this point, Marchioness's average speed was about 3.2 knots or 3.7 miles an hour. So again, about half the speed roughly of the bigger boat. They went through Blackfriars Bridge and headed towards Southwark Bridge. At this point, the Bow Bell overtook the Hurlingham and headed towards the bridge, but also towards the Marchioness. And when the Bow Bell was within 50 metres of the Marchioness, the smaller ship began to be turned and tossed on the water from the kind of the waves of this largest ship. There was no head count done of the partygoers on the Marchioness, but the accepted number on board is either 130 or 131. So it was full busy, packed. Those are just a few of the words I can think to kind of describe that party. For the boat to then be rocked like this from those waves, I can just only imagine how unnerving it would have been for anyone on board. I think it would, yeah, because you've got, I suppose everybody's had a a few drinks at this point. They've been Mm -hmm. out beforehand. It's now the early hours of the morning. So everyone's probably a bit giddy and tucking into the buffet. And it's probably quite a peaceful cruise down the River Thames up until this point. And, um, And yeah, you wouldn't be expecting it. So yeah, people might have gone flying a little bit at that point, or at least very much lost balance, I would have thought. Yeah, definitely. 
And what happened next was just absolutely terrifying. At about 1.46, just after the Marchioness passed under the Southwark Bridge, she was hit twice by the large bow bell. The first impact was about six metres from the stern, which basically spun the smaller boat, and then the second hit was about ten metres from the stern, and it caused the pleasure boat to pivot around the bow of Bow Bell and turned onto its side. The upper part of the Marchioness was then ripped off by Bow Bell's anchor, which was fixed in position up high. The partygoers were plunged into darkness as the lower saloon quickly flooded and the lights went out and the weight and momentum of Bow Bell pushed the Marchioness underwater and she sank within 30 seconds of being hit. Isn't that just, I mean, you've just painted such a terrifying picture because this is in the middle of the night, it's mm-hmm. on the Thames in London and these people were in full flow of a party, having fun, and literally less than a minute later, their ship has sunk. Yeah, 30 seconds in total it took. And that would have been, the the Thames would have been freezing cold, dirty water that you can't see your hand in front of your face. It would have been that bad. Mm Mm-hmm. And as the collision became inevitable, at least one deckhand on the Marchioness shouted a warning to the skipper, Stephen Faldo, who desperately applied full throttle to try and escape that bigger boat, but to no avail. One eyewitness to the crash, Keith Fawkes Underwood, who viewed the incident from the south bank of the Thames, reported to the press, the barge collided with the pleasure boat, hitting it in about its centre, then mounted it, pushing it under the water like a toy boat. Within a matter of about 20 seconds, the pleasure boat had totally disappeared underneath the water. And for me, the description of like a toy boat is kind of what hits me with this. It really shows the size and weight difference that these boats have. And other witnesses use descriptions of a lorry running over a bicycle. God, yeah, it's like the bow bell was just, as I said, and as you've said, it's this absolute beast. It is going to make mincemeat out of any sort of pleasure boat like the Marchioness. So it, it never stood a chance, did it, the Marchioness? I'm still shocked that it sank within 30 seconds, but it really didn't stand a chance. It sank so quickly that most people weren't able to use or locate the life rafts, the boys or the jackets. That's how quickly things happened. Yeah. So I'm really sorry, I'm going to flip back and forth with the timeline a little bit because I seem to have done that quite a few times recently, like with the um, Bradford City fire. But once again, this is a disaster that happened so quickly. So I'm going to take you back to the initial hit of the large dredger. The laughter of the young crowd of partygoers quickly turned to screams of terror as the boat was hit and they were all flung sideways. And then the second hit came and the sounds of the upper structure of the boat being ripped off just added to the panic. You can imagine this like metal scratching and creaking, can't you? Yeah, the kind of noise that you can't, you've probably, you don't understand because you just don't hear that sort of sound. Um, very often at all but yeah Mm -hmm. like metal being ripped off from its own structure yeah and when the lights went out people scrabbled to escape but the water filled the boat really fast one party goer who survived was Ian Philpott who was in the lower deck when the boat was hit and he said I remember turning around to head towards the windows to escape the boat the water started coming in the boat through the window and I knew at this point the boat was going to go down Within a matter of seconds, the general lights went out. Everything was in darkness. I was then thrown forward by a wall of water. The whole 
boat filled with water instantly and when I surfaced I was some distance away from the marchioness which was partially submerged so that's crazy how quickly he was like swept out as well yeah so he finds himself stuck in the middle of the Thames watching well basically looking up getting to the surface of of the water and not seeing the boat because it's gone but he would have seen the bow bell and instantly yeah it would have hit him exactly what's just happened and where the hell is everybody else And some passengers were thrown from the boat into the deep, fast-flowing water of the Thames. Others were trapped inside the boat. Some clung to debris in the water, kind of holding on to hope that they would be rescued. One passenger, Andrew Sutton, spoke to the press years later about his ordeal, describing how he'd been on board with his girlfriend and his friends on the upper deck when they saw the large boat hitting the small vessel that they were on. So he grabbed Helen, his girlfriend's hand, and said, we have to go now, and they just stepped out onto the water. Because they were at the very front of the Marchioness, they did escape physical injury from the collision. But then in the water, they had to fight not to sink underneath. His friend was clinging onto his legs, but he wasn't able to save him from being dragged down by the currents. And he says that he thought about that friend every single day afterwards, blaming himself for not being able to save him. Oh my God, I can just... I think, you know when... I mean, I say you know when we've never been in this situation, but I can imagine if you're drowning, it's like that fight for survival just takes over everything else. So you would almost like cling on to anything, even if it meant pulling your friend under the water. You were going to pull them to try and buoy yourself up um, or to, to try and rescue yourself some way. And I think, yeah, just that visceral fight that's in you that goes beyond anything else and he would have been pulled down um so i don't think he should feel guilty because he there was nothing he could have done to save his friend not at all and also he was holding on to helen he was trying to keep himself afloat and he said that he could see people all around him being thrown by the currents into bridges you know crashing against the sides of the thames crashing into pillars all being sucked under the water. So he just clung to Helen and fought to stay afloat. And he did try and find anything in the darkness he could hang on to, but everything they passed, everything he tried to grab, was greasy and covered in algae. After almost half an hour in the water, with rescue boats passing the pair, just not seeing them, Andrew was exhausted. And Helen was by now unconscious. He finally found something buoyant floating in the river. It was orange and there were ropes attached to it. So he was so happy that he'd found something he could force under Helen's arms. He tied her up with these ropes just to keep her afloat. And then he began to lose consciousness too. I mean, like something out of a movie, as he started to drift and kind of sunk below the surface, someone found him and Helen and basically pulled her out and then said, oh my God, there's another one and they pulled him out as well. He was dragged out by the police, and when he came round aboard a police launch, two policemen on board were resuscitating Helen. Wow. It reminds me a lot of Titanic, if you've ever seen Mm -hmm. the film, which, like, everybody's seen, but that was a very slow sinking of that ship, so that was quite different. But when when the the ship has sunk and everybody's in the water, desperately trying to cling on to something, that's how I imagine the scene unfolding in the small hours of that morning in the Thames, which is incredibly deep, and people just desperately fighting for their lives and and waiting for, for a rescue boat to 
come to their aid and then one just keeps going past them and doesn't even notice them. It is literally, it is like a movie, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure it was it was him who'd said that um, the reason he came round was because someone stood on his foot and I don't think they quite realised that he was alive. I think they thought they were just dragging out his body. Um, but luckily they survived, which was amazing. And Odette Penwarden also talked to the press about her ordeal on board, saying, The dancing was in full swing when all of a sudden the boat lurched. Water came rushing in and knocked me off my feet. It was like going inside a washing machine. I could feel myself losing consciousness, but I had an image of my mother and I decided I needed to get myself out. And she managed to escape through a broken window and she was luckily rescued as well by a police boat. So the Hurlingham, the other party boat that I mentioned earlier, was about 150 feet away from the collision and the shocked guests on board were key witnesses to the accident. The Hurlingham's captain, George Williams, put out an emergency call on WHF radio to the Thames Division of the Metropolitan Police Service that said, Woolwich Police, Wapping Police, Wapping Police Emergency, Pleasure Boat is Sunk, Cannon Street Railway Bridge, All Emergency Aid, Please. So after colliding with the Marchioness, Balbell hit one of the piers of Cannon Street Bridge on Radio TNS at 1.48 saying, I have to get underway now and proceed out through the bridges. I believe I have struck a pleasure craft. It has sunk. I am getting clear of the bridges now. I was distracted by flashing lights from another pleasure craft. My vessel was proceeding outward bound, just approaching Cannon Street Bridge. And, well, I just lost steerage and... um. I don't know after that. I can't really say anything else, sir. Over. They finished their transmission and then travelled downstream, and at Galleon's Reach they dropped the anchor and stayed stationary there. On board was a crew of nine, but none of them took part in any rescue attempts, and they didn't deploy the ship's lifebuoys, flotation attempt devices, or lifeboats. I can't believe that. Can you believe that? That they did nothing? It's crazy, isn't it? And... I know that they would have been in shock, but but your experienced sailors and they know that they they know that that boat was sunk, and that that there is something they could have done, yeah, surely they would have known, yeah, when all the ships in the area were instructed over their radios to go to the area to assist with the rescue, the first was the Hurlingham because they were already on the scene, um but both the crew and those passengers that were having a party began to try and throw lifebuoys and buoyancy aids to people in the water and try to get people out, which I thought was really amazing. And you would just be on that ship, wouldn't you, thinking, Christ, like that could have been our pleasure boat, not theirs. Like that must have been horrendous. They also picked up a number of survivors from the water and headed to Waterloo Police Pier, which is now Tower Lifeboat Station, to drop passengers and the 28 people they'd rescued off. And then the crew returned to the collision site with emergency personnel on board. So that crew of the Hurlingham did so much to try and help. Yeah, those 28 people wouldn't have survived had it not been for them being on the scene so quickly mm-hmm. and and doing everything they could to rescue as many people as they possibly could. They would have all died. Yeah. A major incident was declared and an incident room was set up at New Scotland Yard. The police's body recovery team were deployed and the first body arrived at Wapping Police Station at 6.50am. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher returned home from a holiday in Australia early to be briefed by Mar- 
Michael Portillo, and he announced that an investigation would be made by the Marine Accident Investigation Branch, but that no decision had been yet made as to whether to hold public inquiry or not. And within 24 hours of the collision, the decision was made that there would be no public inquiry. The MAIB investigation would be enough. During the afternoon of the 20th of August, work began on removing the Marchioness from the water and inside the bodies of 24 partygoers were found. These were taken to the morgue to join the bodies of the people who had died and been found in the water in the early hours of the morning. And in total, 51 people on board the Marchioness had died, including the birthday boy, Antonio de Vasoncellos. It's tragic, isn't it? I mean, it's tragic that anybody's died, but it's tragic that he's died. And also it was his birthday. It was his party. People were there because of him. And it's not his fault at all. Nobody could have foreseen what happened. But isn't it just so sad that that they were all there because of him? It's that horrible irony, isn't it? That it was his birthday. And Jonathan Pang's done loads of interviews and really bravely spoken about the guilt that he then carried for so many years because he was the one who planned all of this it was for his friend and he survived and his friend didn't and all like you know so many of his friends and and people on that boat didn't so there's some really really moving and emotional but very good interviews with him he's really articulate guy yeah because I recognize the name and I can picture him because I've seen I've seen one or two documentaries on the Marchioness disaster over the years and he does pop up on on all of them and he's really articulate in the way that he talks about what happened um, but also the aftermath as well which I'm sure you'll come on to so I won't I won't get there first but but because it, the way it was reported in the press was quite interesting in terms of the judgments that were made about the victims. Oh okay so no I haven't really that's not an angle that I've not really looked at to be honest. What kind of things was that? It's something he's referenced a little bit. So um, there were a lot of gay people on on board. There were a lot of people that had money. And the press almost just made a lot of judgments around the kind of lifestyle that these people were leading. And I suppose we would call it victim blaming now. Um, But there was victim blaming around these people and this hedonistic lifestyle that they were leading. And he talks a, a lot about that. Um, there'll be a lot of interviews where he mentions that and that's how it was reported and that's absolutely ridiculous because no matter what your lifestyle whether you survive a giant dredger hitting a pleasure boat what that's that's i I think it was almost like it was almost reported as in it was their fault that they were you know what were they thinking being out on a pleasure cruiser in the middle of the night on the thames getting drunk and i think there was talk about some people taking drugs on board as well which let's be honest a party with 130 people there that's probably going to happen and um, it was 1989 so of course <laughs> so and it, it was like this sort of yuppie culture back then in the 80s so um thatcher was prime minister and, and greed is good and all of that and i think they they came to symbolize this group of people on the marchioness came to symbolize capitalism and those that have and those that don't have and I think the way it was reported in tabloids like The Sun which would have had a largely working class readership 
it was it was reported in such a way that you know these people had money and they lived a hedonistic lifestyle and therefore you know they've put themselves at risk and they kind of deserved this to happen that's not explicitly how it was said but it was reported very much in a judgmental way like that um that yeah they might have had money and all of this and a party lifestyle but look at what happened to them at least you're working class you work in a factory you can't afford a party boat on a river so you'll be okay that's how it was reported oh my god that is such bullshit isn't it and you think yeah. all those other people on the hurlingham who were in the exact same well not maybe the exact same position but a similar position and they did so much to help yeah. oh my god that makes then, me I mean, so cross what, what do you expect like this is our tabloid press yeah it's the sun look at hillsborough um and the way the sun reported on that and this was yeah, exactly. you know similar kind of timing so they were just absolute fuckers mm-hmm very interesting, Mark, because no, I hadn't really touched on that at all. So, I mean, it's not really it's not a key part of the story. No, yeah, it's but not it a is key part, part but it is interesting. Yeah, and it's definitely because we do mention quite a lot on this show the the tabloid media and some of the things that they've done and the you know deplorable things that they've done, and it's it is crazy. I, I do hope that we're starting to kind of learn from that, but I, you do worry that potentially we haven't and. Certain papers do still like to, you know, make a sort of villain of a certain group of people. So, yeah, maybe we haven't learned as much as we should have done. But very interesting because that's obviously Jonathan Pang's actual opinion of it as well. And he lived yeah. through that. So, yeah, it makes sense that if that's how he felt, that's how he was made to feel, whether it was their intention or not. Yeah. So the police arrested and interviewed the Bowbells captain, Douglas Henderson, and Kenneth Noble, Bowbells' second mate, who was at the wheel for the collision. So both men were breathalyzed. Henderson admitted having had alcoholic drinks prior to the collision, but the police announced shortly after that alcohol wasn't a cause of the collision. So Henderson said that on the afternoon of the 19th of August, he had gone to a few pubs, he'd had six pints of lager in three and a half hours, had headed back to the ship about 6pm for food and a short sleep. And then one of the ship's company, Terence Blaney, who had acted as the forward lookout that night, was with Henderson and drank about seven pints over the same period. Um, I'm not really, oh, I'm not very au fait with pints of lager, Mark. I feel like you'd know a bit more. Six pints of lager in three and a half hours, is that It's a, a lot? lot, yeah. I mean, you're far too ladylike, Beth, and... Uh, I drink lager, I just wouldn't drink th- yeah, more than one. <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't be demolishing a pint. Um, I mean, I would say back in the 80s, lager wasn't as strong as it is now, but... Um, six pints or seven pints in three and a half hours is an absolute session and I mean I suppose if they're heavy drinkers it's not going to impact them as much as it would impact I was going to say me but I'm also a heavy drinker um but it's a lot like you would feel pretty pissed from that definitely and so you kind of agree that having a quick sleep isn't gonna really get rid of that then no no I my my other concern and obviously it's it's not one of the official findings, but he headed back to the ship at about six for food and a short sleep. I kind of think, you know, when he headed back and and had the food, was he having another drink with that? And he's just not admitted to that. So he might have had even more, but it's, yeah, a short sleep is not going to sort you out. If anything, you're going to wake up probably feeling a bit more pissed than you already did and really groggy because you've had a couple of hours of, well, I suppose he's had maybe, you know, five or six hours sleep, but it's not enough. It's, you're going, you're not going to be in any position to, 
drive a car, let alone a you know, massive sort of tanker like this. And the victim's relatives were furious because they believed, kind of as you said, that the captain had been drinking heavily. Um, but experts then said that he'd substantially slept off this alcohol intake in a nap before setting off. So, I mean, the victim's families were really furious about the fact that this was this was just dismissed and the charge against him was just failure to keep a proper lookout. See, that that is just bullshit because, like, any expert will tell you that you process alcohol and it, it leaves your system at a rate of about a unit an hour. So even if they were, like, relatively weak pints, he, he probably consumed about 15 units of alcohol. He slept for maybe six hours. So he's going to have the equivalent still of like a bottle of wine in his system at one o'clock that morning when the impact happened. So that that's just bullshit, isn't it? I'm so glad we have our resident alcohol knowledge specialist. Oh, don't. You make me sound like an alcoholic. <laughs> no, not at all. Obviously not at all. But it isn't the sort of thing that I would drink or the amounts that I would drink. So I just didn't really know. Could I pass judgment or not? It felt like a oh lot. Oh my God, you you can totally pass judgment. I, I mean, I would go, like back in the day when we could go out, I'd maybe um, go out with a friend or my dad and, you know, I might have like four or five pints would be about my limit and I'd be like, the next day would be ruined. So this guy's had six in a really short space of time as well and then not a full night's sleep. This is just a kind of uh, an extended nap. I would say. So um, this was a recipe for disaster as far as I'm concerned. The coroner for the city of Westminster, Paul Knapman, opened and adjourned the inquest into the deaths literally the day after the collision, whilst bodies were still being found and recovered. To help with the identification process, Knapman opted to use several methods, including dental records, identification of personal items and clothing descriptions from descriptions by the families, as well as fingerprints. It was a really, really difficult task because not only did they start with the belief that there had been 150 on board, bodies that are recovered from water are a lot harder to identify. As part of their approach, Knapman decided that with any bodies which were not recovered from the Marchioness and would likely kind of only surface when putrefaction and bloating meant that they would float, not only would visual identification be unreliable, it would also be really distressing for relatives, so it shouldn't be used. But where it was impossible to take adequate fingerprints from the bodies, um, basically the hands should be removed and then taken to the fingerprint laboratory. So oh, I thought I that was. I remember this. Yeah. I remember that there was a scandal around this. Yeah. There was a lot of a scandal around this. And it's really difficult because when I was researching this, there's a lot of conflicting evidence around what was decided and why and also who was informed because i think yeah. a large part of the issue was that the families weren't notified that body parts um were removed um and they weren't mm-hmm. burying full bodies of of their relatives it's, yeah i mean it's appalling why couldn't they have used dental records because these people's teeth would have been intact and that might have been a a, a better way of of identifying them well, Richard Shepherd, the pathologist in charge, will tell you. Oh my God, you, Richard Shepherd, he's an absolute legend. Absolute legend. He's the um, author of Unnatural Causes, a brilliant book. He is. Um, I am going to talk about that book now. So you will hear a bit more about dental records in a sec. So he, as Mark 
has said is a legend. Um, He's investigated many of the UK's worst disasters. He's been involved at the emergency stage or the inquiry stage of numerous disasters in the UK. The Hungerford Massacre. Yep. Hillsborough, I'm pretty sure he's part of. He is currently a visiting professor at the City University of London and, as you said, the author of Unnatural Causes, The Life and Many Deaths of Britain's Top Forensic Pathologist. He wrote a really interesting article for The Guardian in which he described his part in the aftermath of the Marchioness disaster. He also discusses his life in forensic pathology. So if you're interested, I'd really recommend you go and have a look at this article and I'll pop a link up onto social media for everybody. In the months following the 20th of August 1989, him and his team would be involved in reconstructing exactly what happened and how each person died. So he described how he received a phone call to warn him there has been a disaster, but that nobody knew how many bodies there would be. However, one thing was certain, there would be bodies. When he arrived, an old police sergeant greeted him and he was taken aback to see that this police sergeant was close to tears, saying, Never thought I'd see anything like this. They're all kids, kids in their 20s. The police surgeon's already been in and certified them all dead. And then he just began to really cry, which was just so sad and moving. In his article, Richard states that in mass disaster management, false identification is the biggest fear. So this is obviously hideous for everyone, especially if a family later begins to suspect that they may have buried the wrong body. So the coroner rightly wanted the most secure and accurate identification methods that were possible. Today, we have the option of DNA analysis, but this was not available to pathologists at the time. The two most secure means were still fingerprints and comparisons of teeth with dental records. But the problem, he said, with dental records is that you have to know the name of the missing person before you can search for their dentist. And only when you know the name of their dentist can you request the records and then try and start matching, which was going to take a long time. And I get that because what do you do? Do you do you do that for 130? Well, not everybody died, obviously, but we're talking like 50 odd people. Do you do that for all of them and keep their bodies in the morgue and not allow their families to bury them? Or do you go for the quicker option so that you can bring about some closure for those families? It was a a difficult decision for them. I get it. And they were kind of working off this assumption at the beginning that there were 150 people on board and they'd recovered 50 people. So, um, who was on board who were they looking for that sort of thing was going to be really tough so they're almost starting with with complete unknowns they would have maybe been told 20 or 30 of the 50s names but yeah because bodies had been in water fingerprinting in the usual way just wasn't an option so the decision was made to remove 25 pairs of hands so whilst this makes a lot of sense in that They needed to be taken somewhere else to print. You can't take the whole body to a different lab that only deals with fingerprinting. This is where a lot of anger after the event stems from. So no written records were kept of the removal. No guidelines were issued over which hands should be removed. No individual person was given responsibility for making any decisions. Um, So things were done differently, slightly depending on who was in charge at that moment. Um... This was just really distressing because the people who wanted to take their loved ones for burial later complained that they were not told in a timely fashion that bodies had been recovered. 
some were denied access to view the bodies of their relatives and some were not told of the processes that would be used so the fact that their their loved one's hands would be removed and potentially not given back to them is really horrendous Mm. it's it's really weird this because it's i know it's only just over 30 years ago but and i'm sure i've said it before when we've looked at cases from from say the 80s even though it's only 30 years ago and that doesn't seem like that long ago to me we were like really backward then i think we've moved forward in loads of ways in in terms of the science around all of this but just in terms of like values and and knowing right from wrong and respecting victims and their families i do think we've moved forward because i just can't quite believe that this was only 30 years ago that we thought that was acceptable and to hoodwink and mislead families of those uh, victims of the Martianess disaster to to misinform them or or just lie to them and and not tell them that they weren't actually burying all of their son or daughter or whoever it might have been and that body parts would have been incinerated at some other random part of the country because that their purpose was no longer required for identification it's just appalling it really is and I read, um, now I read this as a comment on a post, but the person who posted it recently um, seemed to have the right kind of credentials to make a fact, you know, make a statement like this. But they said that you cannot be denied access to view your loved one's body in the UK. So if you're ever told that you are not allowed to, that's not true at all. They can advise you that because of what they look like it would be too distressing they can advise you that you shouldn't because they don't feel that it would be helpful or useful it's not but they can never say that you're not allowed and I thought that was very very interesting so I don't know for sure if this is a fact but the person had said um, their credentials and it was over on Adam's Facebook page during a discussion and I thought that's really really good to know that actually legally no they can't deny you opportunity you may be making a decision that they would advise against but that's your choice and and i absolutely understand why they might advise against it because of course depending on the nature of that that person's death it, it could be really traumatic for a relative to see them like that but i know lots of people really struggle to process um the death of a loved one and to grieve and go through the normal steps of the grief cycle because they've not actually managed to get past the first sort of step which is admitting that it's happened and they can't do that because they 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 don't they're just refusing to believe it because they've not seen the body so a lot of people unless they've seen the body they will not accept that that person has died there will always be an element of doubt in their mind and that will then massively hinder them moving uh, through the, the grief cycle and finding closure. Yeah. So it is important. It should be, even though you're so vulnerable at that time that you'd be making the decision to view the body or not, I think you absolutely should should really be given enough information to make a, an informed decision yourself and, mm-hmm. and to just go with that. It's much better that somebody probably has the option and, and, and views that body than never gets a chance to have done that and, and it, it causes them, you know, massive issues later on in life. Yeah. And there were, with this case specifically, there were loads of issues with the identification process. So most people were identified um, through clothing or personal items. Only four of the victims were actually identified from their fingerprints. So a lot of this was being done 
and then didn't actually mean anything ultimately. However, on the flip side, you're going to try everything you can. So I I can't really pass too much judgment on what the coroner and the pathologist's office did. Um, but one family was shown the body of the wrong person. Then they were given the right person, but without their hands. These were then sent on later with apologies and a request not to tell other parents because this was a one-off mistake, but it wasn't. Um, but at that point they were like, well, can you just not say to anybody else? Cause this was just a one-off. Oh, that makes it all right then. Yeah. Let's just pretend this didn't happen. Yeah. And I, I get that the team were inundated. There were 51 bodies in total. It was a mammoth task. But the way things were handled was awful. The upset it caused the families just doesn't bear thinking about. It was in 1992 that the families finally learned about the hands and became angry. And in March of that year, there was an article published in the Mail on Sunday with the headline cover-up. When Knappman met the two journalists to deny the accusation of a cover-up, he made things even worse for himself. So he basically advised them not to base reports on what Margaret Lockwood Croft, the mother of one of the victims, had said. He described her as unhinged. He showed them photographs of the victims without discussing the matter with the families. Um, And in July, he informed the families that the inquests, which were suspended since April 1990 because of the case against Henderson, would not be recommenced. The families tried to apply for a judicial review on the basis that the word unhinged was used and made reference to a number of mentally unwell relatives, which betrayed an attitude of hostility towards members of the Marchioness Action Group. So this was initially turned down by the High Court, but the Court of Appeal then found favour of the group and allowed an appeal. It's just so... I've skipped ahead again and I'm really sorry, but this case has just so many elements to it i knew that it kind of went on and on and on for for many years later the families were trying to get justice so it's um it is a fascinating story that that yeah it just wasn't tied up in a a neat bow so back to 1989 on the 24th of august the marchioness was taken from her mooring near to southwark bridge and towed downstream to greenwich where she was broken up The Marine Accident Investigation Branch issued an interim report towards the end of August with recommendations to have increasing safety on the Thames. Um, This included a requirement that vessels over 130 foot or 40 metres had to have a forward lookout in contact with the bridge by radio. And they also advised on tighter controls on the passage of vessels along the upper Thames. In October 1989, the companies behind Baubel and Marchioness agreed to pay up to £6 million in compensation to the families of the victims, but without either company admitting any liability for the crash. A week later, a report was compiled for Alan Green, who was the Director of Public Prosecutions, which recommended that criminal charges should not be brought against Henderson. And that December, Paul Knappman, the coroner, met Alan Green to discuss the progress of the inquests. So I hope you're really ready now for a jumble of stop, start, stop, start. So Green firstly agreed that the first part of the inquest should go ahead, dealing with the causes of death, irrespective of the other investigations of the police and the possibility of later criminal charges. A second part of the inquest, establishing the responsibility Um, and kind of making safety recommendations would be discussed at a later date. Knappman was able to reopen the inquest on the 23rd of April 1990, 
But he was really critical of the DPP, so the Director of Public Prosecutions, for taking eight months to decide on whether or not to bring criminal charges against anybody. And this meant that a full inquest could not take place in case it prejudiced any future trial. The inquest then basically ran as a series of individual inquests, so one for each of the 51 bodies. But then on the 26th of April, the DPP stepped in to stop the inquest, stating that charges would now be brought against the captain, Henderson. And because of this decision to stop the inquest, the information on how the collision occurred, who was to blame or what could be done to ensure it didn't happen again, wasn't considered. So it was just all an absolute mess. The only good thing to come out of this part of the story is that they might have taken a month and months and months, but they finally decided to bring criminal charges against Captain Henderson, the, the captain of the Bow Bell. Yeah, so he was finally charged under the Merchant Shipping Act 1988 for failing to have an effective lookout on the vessel. But that was kind of it, really. The case against him opened on the 4th of April 1991 at the Old Bailey and ran until the 14th of April. The jury failed to reach a decision and the DPP decided that a retrial would be in the public interest. So this then took place between the 17th and 31st of July the same year, but it again ended with a hung jury. Do you know what? I'm really not surprised with that either. Um, obviously, I'm an expert now that I've, I've sat on a trial <laughs> as, as a jury member. Um, which I'm going to reveal all on at the end of this month in a Patreon bonus episode. Um, but I'm not surprised because it sounds like w when you're looking at sort of maritime laws, it's quite complex. And although the prosecution would have been at pains to explain all of the intricacies of that particular law to the jury, ultimately 12 random members of the public are not going to fully understand it. So they're not going to fully understand exactly what Henderson did do wrong. And I'm really not surprised that it resulted in not one, but two trials where they failed to, to reach a verdict. So, it, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I think for me, um, even knowing what had kind of happened, I still don't know for sure really what was Henderson guilty of, because as long as the boats were radioing where they were, what they were doing and keeping in touch with the Thames navigation system as they legally had to and as they should um he didn't have a proper lookout as the captain he should have had someone looking out for other boats but it is really difficult because my gut instinct is that ship shouldn't have hit another ship like it, it to me that's ridiculous and they shouldn't have hit something they should have gone back and helped as well I think that's really bad but actually is that illegal were they all just in absolute shock at what had happened and they just sat there in silence were they not bothered maybe but that's so unlikely mm. um i don't know really i at first i was very much like he should have been brought to book for this because you know this went wrong but actually what what could he have done differently what did he do wrong didn't have a lookout is probably the only thing that you could say and if i was on that jury i think i would really struggle too I do get that. I think, yeah, you, you've got to understand as the captain of that massive vessel, he had ultimate responsibility for every other person on that vessel and making sure they're doing their job properly. So he should be held accountable that the lookout wasn't acting in the right way because he was drunk or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it is ultimately his responsibility. But I think, yes, I can understand why a jury of 12 random men and women in this country... Uh, because I, I would find it difficult to understand. I can understand why they failed to really grasp that he was ultimately responsible for it. 
In August 1991, the Transport Secretary, Malcolm Rifkind, took the decision to publish the Marine Accident Investigation Branch report, repeating that because an appropriate body had undertaken an investigation, there was no requirement to have a public inquiry. And the MAIB report considered that Marchioness had altered her course to port, which had put her in line with Balbel's path. So the report concluded that no one near the vessel was aware of the other's presence until very shortly before the collision. No one on the bridge of Balbel was aware of Marchioness until the collision occurred. The immediate cause of the casualty was therefore failure to look out in each vessel. And also, the principal contributory factors were that visibility from the wheelhouse of each vessel was seriously restricted. Both vessels were using the middle part of the fairway and the centre arches of the bridges across the river, and clear instructions were not given to the forward lookout in Balbel. So I thought that was quite interesting, because actually it's saying that both ships should have perhaps been behaving differently. And I think it's interesting that the collision occurred, I can't remember if it was around Southwark Bridge, but it was around a bridge, wasn't it? So, mm-hmm. um, they, yeah, I mean, that makes sense of it now. They were clearly using uh, the same arch or the middle arches to pass under the bridge. And um, I suppose it's a bit like with a plane when it's taking off and landing, that's when you're more likely to have an accident because that's the more complex part of the flight. And I would say navigating a, a huge vessel or even a pleasure boat like the Marchioness, the more com- complex nature of, of a, a trip on one of those boats is going to be navigating under a bridge, isn't it? So their attentions are uh, directed elsewhere. And perhaps, yeah, that, that that is quite a vulnerable time for them where they're not also looking out for other vessels. They're more concentrating on, are we going to pass through this uh, archway under this bridge with the right kind of proportion either side so that we don't hit a wall or whatever yeah and the fact that the bow bell then actually hit cannon street bridge like clunked into it from the impact of something that you'd kind of imagine that it wouldn't even affect them that they wouldn't even notice but it obviously done something because they then hit a you know clipped a bridge that they wouldn't normally clip so no of course so families of the victims were really angry with this move kind of saying that rift kind had delayed publication of the report on the basis that the publication could prejudice the case against Henderson, but the publication could now jeopardise private prosecutions against the shipping company, yet he'd still released it. So it was all kind of all over the shop, like, do you want to not release it or you do? And one such private case had been put forward just two weeks prior by Ivor Glogg. He was the husband of one of the victims, and it was against four directors of the South Coast Shipping Company and the owners of the Baobel for manslaughter and for the charge of corporate manslaughter against the South Coast Shipping Company. The families of the victims criticised the MAIB report, saying that the investigation had not directly interviewed anyone on the Marchioness or Baobel, had relied purely on the police interviews, and they stated that there were errors in methodology, approach and even fact within the report. There was a report done on this, and it did find numerous errors, but when the report was given to Rifkind, he again declined to open a public inquiry. He commissioned a private one, however, which is the Hayes Report, which was published in 1992 in the July, and that looked at health and safety on the Thames, rather than specifically the sinking of the Marchioness. In June 1994, Knapman and his assistant were stood down and replaced with another coroner, John Burton, and a resumed inquest took place in March and April 1995. 
In summing up, Burton instructed the coroner's jury that a verdict of unlawful killing could not be applied to anyone who had already been cleared by a court. The jury then retired retired for four hours and returned a verdict of unlawful killing. And apparently he even said something like, did you not listen to me? (laughs) Oh my God, what idiots. Absolutely awkward. But they clearly felt like this was the right verdict. I do understand. It's very rare to have a jury um like a coroner's jury as well that only ever happens when there is uh when it's like a huge matter of public interest so it's good Mm -hmm. that they did do a coroner's jury but maybe they should have chose a bit better yeah and in 1997 so like what's that eight years later the Marshness Action Group petitioned John Prescott, Secretary of State for the Environment, Transport and Regions and the Deputy Prime Minister, to open an inquest. In August 1999, he instructed Lord Justice Clark to undertake a non-statutory inquiry into the safety on the Thames. This public inquest took place in October and November year 2000, with Clark chairing proceedings and the report was published in March 2001. And finally, the grieving families had some real answers. So Clark concluded that the basic cause of the collision is clear. Poor lookout on both vessels. Neither vessel saw the other in time to take action to avoid the collision. The underlying causes on why neither vessel saw each other were that the Henderson had not ensured a proper lookout on Bowbell. Blaney the lookout was not equipped with suitable radio equipment to inform his captain. And then Faldo on the Marchioness um, who, by the way, did actually die in the collision. He was the guy that was trying really hard at the, at, right at the end to kind of go off as fast as possible. He had not set up a lookout system on the Marchioness, nor did he keep a lookout himself. Focusing on Henderson, Clark wrote, We cannot stress too strongly how much we deprecate Captain Henderson's conduct in drinking so much alcohol before returning to his vessel as master, but we do not think that it is shown on the balance of probabilities that Captain Henderson would have acted differently if he had not consumed the alcohol or had the amount of sleep which he had. So actually, whether he'd been drinking or not, they didn't have a lookout, which is kind of valid. The alcohol made no difference, really. Yeah, I do do get that. It's not a case of um, the alcohol had impaired his decision making. That was just normal. They just didn't have a lookout. It was nothing to do with the alcohol, but that is obviously deplorable that he'd drunk so much. And he was also criticised for his actions after the collision. So as we kind of talked about earlier, when he didn't broadcast a Mayday call, he didn't deploy life boys or life rafts. This is in contravention of Section 422 of the Merchant Shipping Act in 1894. Christ, why can't I say that, Mark? Jesus. Oh, for fuck's sake. Well, there we go. Clark also found that the owners and managers of the vessels held some blame. So for Bowbell, the owners must bear their share of responsibility for the collision and for failing properly to instruct their masters and crews and for failing thereafter to monitor them. And the owners of the Marchioness had given no instructions about all-round lookouts and had failed to adequately instruct, supervise or monitor their boat's captains. Clark also allotted blame to the Department of Transport, who he said were well aware of the problems posed by the limited visibility from the steering positions on both types of vessel, yet failed to deal with the problem. And the PLA also failed to act in this regard and should have issued instructions for the placement of lookouts on vessels, And the Metropolitan Police were ill-prepared and had no contingency plan for such an event. So actually, this report finally gave some real answers and some proper 
facts, which was really helpful for the families, I should imagine. But frustratingly, English law provides no compensation for fatal accidents for anything other than funeral expenses, unless financial dependency at the time of the death can be proven. So in most cases, the families receive simply the cost of the funeral equivalent for their loved ones. Some civil claims for compensation were brought on behalf of the victim's families and the amounts received ranged between 3000 and 190000 The amounts were modest because many of those killed were young, without dependents, and they had no established careers or people that they needed to, that, that they had depending on them. And even the larger sums actually ended up quite small. So one mum reported that she'd been awarded £45,000 But following the costs of having to go to the Court of Appeal to attain damages for the bills for the memorial and for the funeral service, she was left with £312.14. God, isn't that just appalling that they've put, you know, one that they they can put a price on on this anyway, but then for it to be £312.14. How must she have felt when she got that final cheque? Yeah, and the money does nothing to take away the fact that you've lost that person, but it would help you to move on and continue on. And uh, yeah, these families just got nothing. And I wonder perhaps if that was also one of the things that had caused the ill feeling, potentially, that you talked about near to the beginning of the episode. Clark found that because no individual's actions could be ascertained as the single cause of the collision, a manslaughter charge would be bound to fail. And so the report published in February 2001 made 30 river safety recommendations. These were all accepted by John Prescott, the then Deputy Prime Minister. So in 2002, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution introduced four lifeboat stations on the River Thames. There were requirements to introduce air traffic control style systems to track vessels. Flashing lights on bridges have been introduced. But the section where the Marchioness disaster happened is still the most incident prone today. 31% of passenger vessel incidents since 2010 on the Thames has happened on this stretch. It's that section and some of the boats still operating on the Thames have been in use on the river since the disaster of 1989 but haven't undergone the changes that experts would have wanted to have seen. Andrew Dennis, who lost his brother and four friends in the Marchioness disaster, said to the press that he had disbelief that boats and bridges on the river don't have more safety lights. So he said, you should be able to see all the arches of the bridges, all the outlines of the boats. And that really riles me still years later. There's some really interesting pictures from um, memorial services and things that were held. And because they're held at night time, you can see just how absolutely pitch black it was at the time. No wonder people couldn't see what was going on. The Bow Bell was sold in 1992 and in 1996 broke apart and sank in just over 30 metres of water off Madeira. Andrew Sutton, whose brave account we heard parts of earlier, the one with the girlfriend who was he managed to save her, um, he actually went for a dive to kind of confront that ship that had claimed his friend's lives. So he had moved away and he was now an experienced diver at this point. And he said to the press, I think I cried for about three days after the dive. It was so intense. It was very emotional. I thought it was amazing that he decided to actually kind of take a diving expedition down and 
and see that ship that had claimed those lives and had almost taken his. I mean, that, that you would hope that would give a real sense of closure because that ship is at the bottom of the ocean or bottom of the sea and it can't do any more damage from there. Yeah. So I had to try and end on a bit of a high note. So I wanted to point out that in 2001, the Royal Humane Society made 19 bravery awards to people involved in rescuing the victims of the collision, many of whom were passengers on Hurlingham and eight policemen on duty that night were given the Metropolitan Police Commissioner's High Commendation. So I thought that was a nicer thing to end on there. It is, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's just one of, it's one of those disasters in our history that, like Hillsborough, for example, it, it just carried on and on, and the legacy of it is, people still talk about this. I don't think it will ever be forgotten. I really don't think we'll ever get to a point where we've forgotten the Marchioness disaster. I think it will still be talked about in 100 years' time. And I'm pleased that there have been a number of safety recommendations that have been put forward and then and then taken on board. Um, but yeah, it took a long time for the family to to get anywhere near towards any kind of closure with this. And it was very limited in terms of the closure that they got. Yeah. So there we go. Thank you. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody, and listening to my episode. Yeah, please get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor. That's the Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited. Uh, So you can head to their website at beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and don't forget to use code RED10 for 10% off your order. Um, They have got some amazing jewellery, so please do check it out. Um, I also just wanted to give a shout out to the Wives and Knives podcast. We mentioned them very briefly at the beginning of the episode. Uh, So Danny from Wives and Knives has signed up as a patron of our show. Um, Do check them out. I've been listening over the last week while I've been working from home. Uh, There are only a few episodes in, but I listened to the um, Stuart Lubbock episode so most of you will be familiar with that, but he was the man who died in the swimming pool at Michael Barrymore's home. They've done a really, it's a really solid episode on that. So so do check out their show. It's Wives and Knives, available where you get your podcasts, but it's definitely worth a listen. And they're two friends that, um, that discuss the cases. So it feels like you've got a bit of company uh, if you're on your own, if you're working from home on your own or something. So Yeah, you so have been absolutely raving about that podcast, which is li- really lovely. It's nice to find someone new to listen to, isn't it? So. I think it is, and it, it remi- they remind me a lot of, of us. Uh, they've got quite a similar conversational approach to it, which um, mm. it's really easy listening, but it is, it's also really detailed. Um, it, don't forget to check us out on Patreon. So uh, as I said um, earlier on in the episode, I'm going to be doing a special about my jewellery duty that I fulfilled this month. So if you want to know about that, what it involved, what trial I sat on, I'm going to dish the dirt i'm going to tell you everything um so we'll have that episode out we normally release on the last friday of every month but i think it's probably going to be on friday the first of april that i release it so uh because we've not recorded it yet but um but do look out for that and if you want to sign up to support us on patreon then all you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast and open yourself up to a world of seeing red brilliance uh, it's all there waiting for you right now. <laughs> a world of seeing red brilliance. I couldn't have, you know, put it any better. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to add another thing. This is going to be a very long episode and I'm very sorry, but I just wanted to give a massive shout out to all of our listeners who run small businesses who have taken part 
um when this episode comes out it was the weekend prior um we've had we've just got such really really incredibly talented listeners which is amazing so um thank you to everybody who sent through their small businesses and we've kind of showcased them um and hopefully you guys have found some more things to go shopping for i know i already have so oops um but yeah thank you everybody who gets involved on social media it's really really good so um i'll make a story highlight thingy on instagram if you're interested in any of our listeners small businesses um please do pop over to the highlights story and you can have a look through them and maybe go follow their pages if you like what you see so until next week i'm taking you uh to asia next week so we will uh we will see you then exciting yeah very interesting little teaser for you Uh, so Mm. we'll see you next week guys take care see you then bye bye